0: Let's talk about Lots. We both listen to it. Why do we like it?
1: I like a lot because they delve into the actual mechanisms of an industry. You know, economic stuff usually focuses on theory, on research, empirical stuff, on policy. And then there's a lot of podcasts that focus on business. Like, how do you make money in this thing? But then how does this industry work? What are the overall economic implications of this industry? That's a niche. It was from them that I first learned about the semiconductor industry. I didn't really understand the strategic implications or or some of the supply chain issues that they did this whole series of posts on semiconductors and I was like, wow, and then I went and read chip war and i was like wow i I hang around venture capitalists all the time and some of the venture capitalists that i had on to discuss the vc industry really laid it out in a way that was original and new to me that i hadn't thought about and i was again like wow it's just a podcast with the highest density of wow of any podcast i know
2: listen to odd lots on apple spotify and wherever you get your podcasts a link is in the description
1: if we have a better welfare system than Guatemala and you're a poor person who needs welfare and you're in Guatemala, you're like, well, I should move to the United States where at least I'll be taking, have my basic needs taken care of. That is rational. And yet, if you agree that a nation has the right to, to govern its borders, to determine who gets in, that a nation has the right to be an exclusive club and that open borders is silly, which I think essentially all Americans will agree with, then you're going to say, I'm sorry, poor Guatemalan person. I am not going to let you in. That's what everyone's going to say except a few activists who are like a poor Guatemalan has just as much a right to live here as a poor American. Why Why is this person different? Or libertarians will say this, you know, libertarians of course, just they want to destroy the welfare state. That's a feature, not a bug, right? They're like, yeah, let's let in more immigrants. So support for welfare state goes away. Shut up, like sub libertarians, no one likes you and no one ever liked you. <laughs>
0: Welcome to Econ One Hundred and Two, where economist Noah Smith and I make sense of what's happening in the news, technology, business, and beyond, through the lens of economics. Let's jump right in. Hey Noah, how's it going? Hey, sorry I missed it. It was uh, eleven. No, no worries. Um, everything's good.
1: Hmm. Well, uh, you know, most most stuff is good. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm over my illness, which is great. That's great.
0: Yeah. your am wearing voice my, was, uh... Uh... Oh, amazing. Perfect. Uh, perfect timing. Yeah. We'll, we'll start. Uh, we'll start with that. We're, we're gonna get into, uh, immigration today. Uh, you had a, uh, a piece recently, uh, angry, uh, uh, Americans are angry about immigration and there's a history of Americans being, uh, mixed about immigration, despite us also being known for, uh, you know, being a country of immigrants and, and assimilating, having assimilation superpower. Um, why don't you talk about why? Uh, some Americans are angry about immigration and what's, uh, give give some of the history behind it as well. Well, it's really hard to know, you know, why, uh, because polls,
1: you know, people don't always say exactly what they think on polls and polls are notoriously kind of vague and unreliable, but um, you can see some trends. You can really see that um, during the Trump years and actually from from 2015, when Trump started really coming to prominence and, and saying, you know, saying things that people interpreted as bashing immigrants um, and basically, you know, have it being a very, the sort of like anti-immigration candidate uh, from in, from those years um, pro-immigration sentiment really started to rise and anti-immigration sentiment really started to plummet in America. And you also saw a partisan gap open up previously. You had, had pro and anti-immigration ideas on both sides of the political spectrum. You had Democrats, who basically wanted to protect American workers from competition, um, from immigrants, um, and you had Republicans who, you know, wanted to keep, you know, keep American culture the same and blah blah blah. But then you also had um, a bunch of people who were pro-immigrant on both sides, and that that stopped sort of being true. Uh, Republicans essentially got polarized into thinking that in, into the um, Have you ever heard of the Great Replacement theory?
0: Yes. Uh, the idea that uh, white people represent a certain percentage of the population and that there is a desire to reduce that population. Yeah,
1: I, I was actually surprised because I um, you know, of course, most pro-immigration people are not thinking that way. You know, they'd be absolutely happy if a, a, a bazillion Russians came here. Right. It's like white immigrants came here. Um, uh, but there are actually a few people who think that way. I was very surprised to find uh, that. Um, but but I think that there's a softer kind of version of the Great Replacement Theory, which is the political replacement theory. Oh, right. That's the racial replacement theory. The political replacement theory is the idea that Democrats are importing votes. Because when you look at immigrants, uh, you know, naturalized immigrants and kids of immigrants, they tend to vote very strongly Democratic. This has been true throughout the history of the Democratic Party, all the way back to the, you know, early 1800s when it began. The, the Democratic Party has very, very consistently been the party that immigrants wanted to vote for. And only after they've been here three generations do they start voting Republican. <laughs> this, this, is, this is
0: like our most reliable cycle. And so it's interesting, even in the last like 20 years, did Democrats become more pro-immigration uh, sort of after Bernie or, or what is sort of the... Because uh, I remember Bernie saying, "Oh, pro-migration—that's that's a Koch policy, or that's a, that's a libertarian open borders." He said. Yeah, open, open borders—that's borders. a Koch brothers policy. Yeah, yeah. Said that. Well, what is so sort Bernie of the history from the of the
1: old uh, labor left? You know, yeah, he, he thinks that he thinks that uh, you know, open borders will will swamp American workers. Um, you know, I can I can go into the economics of this uh, if you want. Yeah. So the the truth is that. Um, is that, uh, so So open borders is, is you know, a, a policy that no one says they want. Uh, what some progressives want is essentially to attack the specific every specific mechanism of border enforcement, um, thus creating open borders, uh, you know, in a de facto sense, just by subtraction. Rather, you know, they would never say like, I think borders should be open. A few people will say that on Twitter, like, you know, people yell, borders should be open. But actually, to be honest, that's a much more common thing among libertarians, right? Libertarians like Brian Kaplan um, will say open borders. Yeah. But like, um, but then progressives will rarely say that they'll just attack specific mechanisms of border enforcement. um, And, you know, just, just uh, try to weaken the the state, the state's capacity to enforce immigration. I think that's what people are mad about, by the way. Um, When you look at, So, so what's happened recently is since, uh, since 2021, restrictionist sentiment, sentiment that says we have too much immigration, we need less has just absolutely spiked back to sort of the levels it was at in Obama's first term. Whereas uh, pro-immigration sentiment has declined um, concomitantly. And so we see uh, essentially a reversion to the, to the, you know, sort of mean here. And some people have interpreted this as thermostatic politics. They say, okay, well, when a Democrat's in the White House, people, you know, take like more Republican positions and Republicans in the White House, they take more Democratic positions, blah, blah, same old, same old. But when you look at the history of Democratic and Republican presidencies, it's not like that at all. You just don't see that. And then this this is, you know, and maybe that immigration has become a wedge issue, like a cultural wedge issue in recent years. And that's why you're starting to see that. Um, but then, but it certainly hasn't happened before. So I reject sort of the thermostatic politics explanation. Um, you know, it, it, there, there may be some, some partisan effect. You know, there's certainly some partisan effects here. There may be some like instinctive reaction like, Oh, I, I'm, I'm upset about inflation. So I'm going to say I'm upset about immigration. When you look at the polls though, what people are upset about is, uh, very clear it's border chaos. Um, our asylum law, Uh, We already talked about this on the podcast earlier, but our asylum law basically allows people to, uh, you know, uh, illegally cross the border, turn themselves into the border patrol and essentially get a free ticket into America. That is chaos and the breakdown of order and state capacity and a country's ability to choose who, you know, who gets into the country. It's, It's a threat to the country's, you know, status as an exclusive club that says, here's who can get in, here's who can't get in. People don't like that. People want the country to be in control. They want high state capacity. They want you know, in some sense, democracy, they, they want to know that they are able to choose who gets in instead of, you know, like them having no control and just being helpless. And so I think that's, what's really going on here. Um, That's public opinion wise. So economics wise, um, there's a couple things to consider. So, so most people think of, of this economic uh, immigration issue as a wage and labor and job competition issue. Uh, They think, you know, increase in labor supply. Well, that that competes for jobs. That's just supply and demand. Duh. Right. Um, It it, it is not because um, immigrants who come in also increase labor demand. And that's what's that's what almost nobody on the pro or anti side seems to really understand. Uh, Although hopefully some people are starting to understand this. But when you have immigrants come in, they need houses to live in right? And so they need to buy the services of construction workers. They need to get set up with their taxes. And so they need the service of tax preparation people. They need all these kinds of things. They need food. So they need to eat at, you know, local restaurants, shop at local groceries. They need furniture. They need all kinds of things. And the money they're getting paid is getting paid back out again (laughs) in terms of them, you know, buying things. That creates product demand, which creates labor demand. So immigrants are a huge source of, uh, of, of demand and they buy a bunch of stuff. The easiest way to understand this is to think of immigrants as just uh, similar to babies, you know, that are born outside our country. You know, if you create a whole bunch of new Americans by people having kids, you wouldn't necessarily say, oh, this labor competition is going to just drive down wages massively because those, those people are going to provide demand, right? A baby, the baby boom didn't crush wages because the baby boomers bought a bunch of stuff,
0: right? And immigrants... Are just babies born elsewhere what do you what do you say to the argument that uh, or to the hypothesis or proposal that a country's immigration policy should be sort of equivalent to a company's hiring policy where you want to get the, the the best people but anyone who's been in an organization knows that just more people isn't always better sometimes people actually are, are a problem if, if they're not if they don't have the right behaviors etc et, et, et do you think that analogy falls uh, f- flat on its face or is it, did you reject well, it? No, that that's actually a
1: good, it's a good analogy, but be careful about the conclusions that you draw from this because, um, uh, be, yeah, be very careful about the conclusions you draw because assuming, s- suppose you're running a big company and, uh, you're like, well, I want to hire some great engineers. So you do, so that's like high skilled immigration, right? You want to hire some great engineers, but I also want to hire some people to just staff phones and do like support and sales and stuff like that. Or, or, my warehouses, whatever Amazon warehouses, and you know, who are you gonna get for that? Are you gonna try to, are you gonna try to hire, uh, you know, professors with a whole bunch of top journal publications to like staff your sales line? Are you gonna hire like ACE engineers to, to um, you know, do do, like customer support? No, you're not. And now think about the janitors, right? Think about the security people, think about the receptionist, think about the, the people who clean your fancy little fish tank that you have in your fancy office downtown right think about all those people and you know those people do you want you know like the 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 top you know the top people for that no like that that's not you'd have to pay them too much right think about how much you'd have to pay like you know a a um a top engineer to be your janitor and whether or not it's worth paying that much for a janitor it wouldn't be um so so A society does not simply run on high-skilled labor. Now, I believe that we should bias our immigration system strongly toward high-skilled labor for a different reason. And that reason is clustering, which I'll explain in a second. But if you think about it in terms of just a simple analogy of, you know, our country is a company. We want to hire the best people. But yeah, okay, fine. But we want to hire the best people for a very wide variety of jobs. Right? I mean, like, who who's going to mop your floor. Yeah. And, and when you look at, when you look at the lifestyle of the upper middle class or, or just the middle class, the middle, middle class, uh, in various countries, um, you know, having, having cheap service workers, cheap childcare, you know, uh, cheap, cheap roofing and landscaping and whatever, um, is, is an important determinant of the quality of life in places like Singapore. And places that don't have this where everybody, you know, I mean like, I I love to work on my own stuff just as much as anybody, you know, as a hobby. But when you don't have this, it's really expensive. It's a big draw on your time, right? Like, do you, do you wanna have to learn how to fix your roof? Maybe you'd like to learn how to fix your roof because it's fun, right? Like, oh yeah, I'm fixing my own roof. I'm, I'm cool, I'm a hobbyist, right? That's great, you know? But do you wanna have to do that for every menial task? No, do you wanna have to like mow your own lawn? Like, mowing your own lawn isn't a fun hobby. It's just it's just boring, so, so you know here's somebody in Guatemala who wants to mow your lawn, why not get that person in Guatemala to come mow your lawn? So like, yeah, so, so, so this is, that's the argument that pro-immigration people on the Republican side were making for many, many years. And recently that argument has started to just lose, lose the fight on the Republican side. And why? Well, I think it's because of fear over, um, you know, uh, race wars, fear over cultural change and displacement and fear over uh, immigrants voting for Democrats, the political replacement idea. I think those three fears are why Republicans fear immigration. But I think that a lot of Democrats have started getting some of these fears as well. Um, and we can talk about those fears, but uh, but yeah, I do think of a country as sort of basically analogous to a company in term- and immigration is a hiring policy. I think that's actually a good analogy.
2: Hey everybody, Eric here with a word from our sponsors are Democrats getting concerned because they're worried about labor? Like is
0: the, is the idea you mentioned, you know, mopping the floor. We don't want to do that, but we have a lot of jobless people in this country. Do they want to do it? Are are, are there, are there, are there, you know, unions certainly don't like, uh, certain unions don't like immigrants, right? Is it because they, they make labor cheaper or? Well, yeah. So, so unions definitely are
1: thinking in terms of immigrants being labor competition. The union people that I talked to have not really uh, you know, sort of, um, uh, not really internalized the idea that immigrants are a source of labor demand. Now that doesn't mean, you know, I mean, people who work in unions don't always know what's best for the long-term future of unions. So uh, as an analogy, unions were pretty strongly anti, uh, anti-housing construction in California until relatively recently when they, most of them flipped and started becoming pro-housing construction because they realized that their members and their workers had nowhere to live and that more housing construction will create demands for the services of unionized labor in a variety of ways. So when they realized that, you know, unions started going YIMBY, but it was a, it was a difficult process. They had to do elections and they had to kick out a lot of the previous leadership who was in charge. Uh, you know, they, they kicked out the, the old NIMBY people and they, they voted in YIMBY people and now unions are pro-housing. So, so unions don't, unions, just like everybody else, there's nothing special in terms of unions, right? Unions or any institution doesn't immediately understand what's, what's good for it. And the idea of labor protectionism is deeply, you know, this is like, this is goes back to, you know, the beginnings of the progressive movement, like FDR during the depression deported, uh, something like, um, 2 million, uh, Mexicans and Mexican Americans, like people who were American citizens were just rounded up and summarily deported to Mexico under FDR by the millions. Well, no, the, the, the citizens weren't deported by the millions. There were like tens of thousands of those, but then, but, but Mexican people were deported by the millions. And, um, and it was just like, get out of here. You're providing labor competition. It didn't work. It didn't help. You know, um, the, uh, uh, I think it was Pete Seeger who, who, wrote a, uh, a song called Deportee. Was, was that Pete Seeger or was it Woody Guthrie? I don't remember who wrote that that protest song, but it was about this this policy. And it was about how, you know, essentially all the fruit rotted because there was no one to process this fruit because you just grabbed all your agricultural workers and just kicked them out. Um, and then during uh, the Eisenhower administration, we, um, we had another, I think it was Eisenhower administration. I'm pretty sure. Um, it was, uh, yes, it was under Eisenhower. It was called um, Operation Wetback. That was the real name of a thing. And we deported about another million people. Uh, and so then that was sort of an echo of that. Um, but, then, but then this really began, you know, under FDR. And so as recently as, you know, um, in the 70s, uh, Cesar Chavez, who's a, a beloved sort of pro-immigrant, pro-labor figure, you know, he uh, used the term wetback to, ref- it's, it's a it's a slur for illegal immigrants. It's a slur for, you know, unauthorized immigrants, let us say, because um, many people think illegal immigrant is also a slur, but it is a slur for people who are, you know, just cross over illegally to America and, and try to get work. Cesar Chavez hated these people. He railed and railed against them and called them wetbacks and, and advocated for policies to enforce borders and harshly exclude these people because he believed that the the illegal immigrants were creating massive amounts of labor competition for his constituents in his, in his union, in his, you know, support group, which were either, you know, legal immigrants or were, um, you know, the, the kids of, of immigrants. And so, so there was this long tradition of labor protectionism. And Bernie, who's, you know, an old guy, he comes out of that tradition. And so none of these people realize the thing about labor demand. And so none of them, you know, research just keeps verifying, keeps verifying that when you have this big surge of, you know, immigration, whether it's from refugees or or some policy changer whatever, some random surge of like a bazillion people come into your country, basically wages for native-born people go don't go anywhere. Nothing happens to them. And employment for native-born people doesn't change either. And this is kind of one of this very robust facts of, of economics. You see maybe some slight effects um, somewhere, you know, some slight positive effects somewhere, some slight negative effects somewhere, but as a, as a whole, it really doesn't do anything. And I, I was just looking at two more papers, recent papers that confirm the exact same thing. And I'm just like, oh my gosh. So, so that's, so in, in economics, that's really this one fact that almost nobody on the progressive or conservative side seems to understand this labor demand effect. But on the other hand, there are real costs to immigration that are economic that have nothing to do with wages and jobs and that people rarely talk about, but that are real. And that I feel on some level, people probably have to kind of intuit this and be mad about it. Um, but they don't talk about it much. And so one of those is housing competition. So America is extremely nimby. Since the 1970s, we basically don't build housing. And when you get a whole bunch of immigrants flooding into a location, um, they start bidding for the houses there. When you get low skilled immigrants, they bid for houses in, you know, sort of, uh, working class neighborhoods, you know, and, and, and drive prices up. And when you, um, when you have uh high-skilled immigrants, they bid for houses in um, in nicer neighborhoods, right? You have engineers moving over here from, from India, from China, from, from places like that, Philippines. And then they come here and move to a nice neighborhood where like one of these sleepy, leafy, mostly white neighborhoods, or at least they were mostly white 20 years ago with all the lawns and the ranch houses and blah, blah, blah. And suddenly, you know, prices are getting bit up and so some people are like great i own a house my house just went up in value yay and some people are like wait i rent i'm mad because you know this is increased competition blah 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 all of this happens because of nimbyism because we we don't build new housing to accommodate these people and during the 90s and 2000s we built we did we built out right we built into greenfields we built the exurbs we built um onto you know unused land, single family houses connected by roads to cities. We built that. And it was the great coming of the ethnoburbs because a whole bunch of high-skilled immigrants came over and they lived in those nice ethno-burbs, right? So if you've ever been to like the San Gabriel Valley, right? Or, or like Fremont, California, you know, you go to Fremont that, that used to be like a sleepy town of like white people who descended from the agricultural blah, blah, blah and then income a whole ton of engineers because it's a very easily accessible bedroom community if you want to work in the south bay in the peninsula right in in like the old silicon valley in in mountain view and cupertino and and menlo park and all those places if you want to work there fremont's a great place to live you just drive right across the dumbarton bridge and you're there um and so fremont became this this bedroom community for all these primarily immigrant engineers and uh, you know i have a lot of friends who grew up in fremont right? During the uh, the 90s and, and 2000s, because that's what that was. And so then, of course, people got really mad. And, you know, there's books about how people in Fremont sort of rebelled against this and blah, blah, even though some were happy because their housing values went up because the demand went up. And some people were unhappy because the culture changed, as in they got Ranch 99s in Fremont or, you know, um, uh, a bunch of Asian restaurants and, and outlet shops. Uh, They're like, what, our culture is changing. And then one of the other cultural changes, interestingly, was that people in Fremont got really mad that uh, immigrants from Taiwan and India wanted to build very large houses on their plots. So um, I love those, those houses. So, you know, those, it's, you could call those McMansions, but, you know, that's just a derogatory term. They actually look quite nice uh, in most places. But then, uh, you know, these are, we're talking like 5,000 square foot homes on a standard single family home plot that with balloon construction, right? So it's a giant, it's a giant home. And, and these are insanely nice, like, you know, not to get discriminatory, but no one in the world creates as nice houses as Taiwanese and Indian Americans, uh, uh, sorry, Taiwanese and Indian immigrants to the United States. Those people create the nicest houses in the world. And those how like... That is the kind of house I want to live in. There should be like, you know, interior design firms that are staffed entirely by Taiwanese and Indian immigrants will just say, I will build you that kind of house because you walk in the house. And it's amazing because like it's got this vaulted ceiling in this living room that's accessible from the, you know, front door. There's like a living room with a vaulted ceiling and you know, there's this open plan with like a kitchen with a giant kitchen island and you know, stuff like that. And the living room has like a U shaped couch and has like this nice rug where you can play like dance, dance revolution. If it's 2002, <laughs> right? <laughs> and it's, uh, and then there's this, this stairway coming right down that looks like someone's. You know, like some someone's gonna like come down the stairway for prom, like in one of those '90s movies, <laughs> like you know, in the 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 like, uh, you know, I don't know, the 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 prison comes down for, for prom, yeah. they're all dressed up because they come down that stairway because there's bedrooms on the second floor. These houses look amazing, and the people in Fremont tried to ban them. Wow, they tried very hard, and in fact, they did. They they uh, Fremont houses now recently constructed Fremont houses are worse because basically the old white people insisted on everyone having a big lawn. They insisted on ranch houses over, you know, these, these really, really nice, uh, you know, houses because they, that was what that was neighborhood character. Right. And so very often you're talking about cultural fear, uh, of things like big houses or ranch 99. Like that's when you get on the ground, that's what it often looks like at the local level. And I have no sympathy for this. Ranch 99 is great. Those big houses are great, uh, you know, and then then like small houses on giant lawns suck. You know, I grew up in a place with lots of houses like that. It is just the most sterile crap you could imagine. Build a big, hu- let people build a big house. Let people have some cool restaurants. And so anyway, there, there is
2: cultural fear
1: there. And, but there's also fear of getting priced out by demand.
2: Hey everybody. Eric here with a word from our sponsors. L- let me ask you, just let's pull that thread. Why is America
0: so NIMBY? Have we always been so NIMBY? Like I understand why SF is so NIMBY in some places in California. Is it? Is it basically the same reason? And is it all just emergent um, on a local level or is there anything that could be done at the national level or, yeah, talk about that.
1: Well, national and state level is really the only place you can do anything about it because uh, you know, a local, um a local government is a cartel right it's it's the people who might want to live there or who might live there if it had better policies just never get a vote right like you're not you don't get to vote and so um so basically if you want people to have to build building creates change um, when you build new structures new houses new businesses you know retail offices too um, your, your communities change and people in America decided they didn't want change. They, it was a reactionary impulse against, uh, you know, cultural changes that were happening in America. The idea that we can freeze the built environment, we can freeze the physical environment, and then those changes will be happening far away. They'll be happening somewhere else. So in the seventies, you know, riots and urban disorder and crime and, and things like that, uh, you know, scared people, people thought, okay, if I can use. Uh, you know, NIMBY policies to make sure that my built, you know, that my leafy suburb stays the same forever, looks the same forever, none of that stuff will touch me, right? And then in the 90s and 2000s, you started to have a, a bunch of um, non-white immigrants from Latin America and Asia come over, and people said, well, if I can keep my leafy suburb the same, well, then that, any changes that result from that won't touch me. And people don't sit down and think, well, hmm, are Mexican immigrants really different than like my white neighbors are? No, they don't think about that. They just think, okay, well, maybe it'll, maybe something will change. Maybe it'll, something will be different. But if I just prevent any new housing from being built, then none of that will touch me. Then I, I have the, the certainty of stasis. And so the certainty of stasis became a subsidy that we started to grant people. And this is the concept of a stasis subsidy. Uh, well, it's a, well, that's what I call it. Uh, I invented that term. I don't know if anyone wants to use it yet. So, so
0: please use my vocabulary.
1: Um No, so that, that's what I call it, right? <laughs> like pundit begs you to use his his chosen, you know, his to made up word, happen. a
0: story in the yeah. onion.
1: I, <laughs> yeah, exactly right. It's like, um basically this is what you do when you're breaking into rap, right? You create a new term <laughs> and hope that people use it. And then you go around using it a whole bunch. And then after a while, if nobody listens to your rap and you're just using this term that only you uh you know <laughs> used and people are like what and then you fail exactly. as a rapper. Um anyway, so I, I just called it a stasis subsidy because I couldn't think of what else to call it, because people derive value uh in the present from the certainty of what of knowing what the world will look like in 10 years. That lessening of you know the risk of the world changing provides real value to lots of people, especially old people. And our society is getting older and older. Um, but At the same time, it creates a huge amount of hidden costs, right? Because now people have nowhere to live. So housing costs go up. Now businesses have to just, you know, pay too much for labor for, you know, like engineers, because, you know, that's that's why you have these like $300,000, $500,000 salaries for all these engineers is because, you know, you need that much to afford that in the Bay Area. And so that the landlords just are sitting on, squatting on land and capturing a lot of that money and then prices go up. Right. And so you get, you get, you know, long term expensive stuff uh, all over the economy, expensive stuff and shortages all over the economy because the, you know, you'd need to build housing and you'd need to build commercial buildings as well in order to produce stuff cheaply. And you can't, you can't do it here. You can't do it anywhere uh, because of NIMBYs, right? You can't build power plants. And if you can build power plants, you can't build the transmission lines to connect them to the grid because there's NIMBYs blocking it. Um there was just some some story about uh, Native American tribes building solar farms, not able to connect them to the grid. Because as soon as you get off the, you know, the lands that they they control, um, you know, then it's then it's just a bunch of white ranchers who are like, Well, y- y'all ain't building power line paths in my ranch. You know, and so it's like um, so so just massive NIMBYism everywhere blocks everything, and the economy gets poorer and poorer and it stagnates. Guess what? Stasis precludes growth. And you can say, growth, we don't need growth, you know, because that's what, when people say, we don't need growth, we don't need more growth. Like when they say growth is a, a thing they're scared of, what they really mean is change. They're scared of the possibility that something will be different in a bad way in the future and want to cling to what they have, hold on to what they have. That's the stasis subsidy. That's the value of stasis right they don't think about the cost of stasis no one until recently no one was thinking about the cost of stasis so because so many things were going right elsewhere in the economy in 19 in the 1980s and the 1990s and in the early 2000s because so many things were going right we didn't think about this regime of stasis we were allowing to build up at the local level that was absolutely pervasive and yet now it is biting us because the easy gains that we had so the easy gains that we had we built out the exurbs Right. The far flung suburbs. That was easy gains and NIMBYism didn't stop it. Right. We built out the IT industry and because it was fairly delocalized and, you know, didn't have a huge physical footprint. Um, that was an easy gain. Right. We had, we outsourced stuff to China and that seemed like an easy gain, at least for the people who, who got to benefit from that, not so much from the workers who competed against outsourcing. Um, we had demands, uh, you know, on increased demand for housing. Uh, you know, pumped up people's house prices. And we had all of these easy gains in our economy. And so we ignored the hard stuff. We ignored the base. We ignored uh, the fact that our built environment was stagnating as a result of this toxic bargain that we made in the 70s. And as a result of that, we did not see the stagnation sneaking up on us. And when those easy gains petered out, when those easy gains, you know, dropped off, we didn't have any, you know, we had nowhere to go because now the stasis subsidies that we've been doling out since the seventies came back to bite us. Now, suddenly there's a massive housing shortage in our, in our attractive cities, in our most productive cities, right? Now there's a, you know, factories are insanely expensive to build here relative to other countries. And we lost competitiveness. Now we're, it's very difficult to build new power plants, blah, blah. blah. So, so we, you know, when, when the, the easy gains of the 80s, 90s and early 2000s ran out, and when we started having to confront real constraints, we discovered to our dismay that we had allowed ourselves to ho- we had hobbled ourselves with this stasis regime since the 70s that now we're trying to get rid of. And it's very difficult to get rid of because people still want that stasis subsidy. They still want the feeling of, well, at least I know that my neighborhood will be the same in 10 years. And they can't we can't afford that anymore.
0: Do you think that there is a path for this to change in the next f- few years or what would need to be true for it to change? And, and um, you know, what could the incoming president, for example, do here or where, where's the highest leverage point? There's absolutely a path for it to change. So
1: and and the Biden administration has been better than any other administration uh, in my lifetime for this, which doesn't mean as nearly as good as it needs to be. I think that's a hard thing for a lot of people to swallow is the fact that the the, the Biden administration is just a step on the way to something much better. Uh, the Biden administration has been very pro housing. They've been looking into building public housing. Uh, so, so public housing, by the way, we usually think of as what they call social housing, as in you build the, the government builds and operates an apartment building. This often doesn't work out very well. Uh, in some countries it can work out like Austria, but then usually it, uh, you know, it, a lot of things go wrong with this. The government is not a great landlord. There's a lot of political pressure on, you know on the government to do various other objectives as a landlord that, you know, end up getting in the way. And so, uh, but the better form of public housing is what Singapore does, uh, which is basically government uses its own land. Government owns massive, massive, massive amounts of land in the West. So use the land, build housing on the land and then sell it to people. And, um, and so that's the Singapore model. And that's sort of what the administration is starting to move in the direction of at the state level, you know, we do reg- land use regulation at the state level, we're starting to see major movement. So we've seen California pass a giant raft of YIMBY bills. Uh, this will not be enough on, uh, without a few more things. There's a few, there's basically like a defense in depth that NIMBYs have against new construction in California. So, you know, there's, um, there's land use regulations, there's zoning, there's, then there's permitting stuff. Uh, you know, you have to go through CEQA, and historic preservation. So now that basically YIMBYs broke through the the first two barriers, you know, of zoning and uh, and and non-zoning land use regulation, and uh, basically upzoned a lot of stuff. But NIMBYs are going to block it all with sequa, and they're going to uh, block some of it with attempts at you know historically preserving a Walmart or a gas station, right? So then, uh, so YIMBYs will have to break through that by limiting sequa and by limiting. Uh, historic preservation, and then they will win, and then we'll see a bunch of construction. But in other states that don't have as much of a defense in depth, you're already starting to see increased construction. You're starting to see some some movement in Minneapolis, uh, Washington State, um, places like that. You're starting to see some Yimby victories, and, and Yimbyism is becoming sort of the nationwide movement. Whether it'll be enough, I can't say, but people know what they need to do, and they're on the right track, and we're starting to see some legislative movement, so that's great. You know, that's great.
0: Yeah. Let's cycle back to uh, immigration. You said one of the best economic arguments or arguments against immigration is sort of what it does to housing. Are there any other um, ar- arguments that you're sympathetic to a- against immigration in terms of the co- the costs? Right, um,
1: when, when you have massive NIMBYism in place, immigration makes things harder because then you have to be 10 times as YIMBY in order to accommodate the inflow as you would, you know, without the immigration. So if you're just accommodating people who move to San Francisco to chase the dream of being in a startup and because there's some good jobs here, blah, blah, blah. If you're just accommodating that, maybe you only have to win a few YMB victories. But if you are, if you have to accommodate that, plus like massive amounts of people moving here from, you know, India, Vietnam, Philippines, whatever, because they want to participate in this, you know, tech gold rush. Well, then then you have to be much more YMB, right? So you can get kind of, four dimensional chess and cute about this and say oh you know if we have a bunch of immigration it will it'll you know it it it'll heighten the contradictions by by showing us how much we need to build and then that will create the pressure to finally go mega yimbi at the national level um that's called accelerationism that's always a very dangerous thing uh to, a very mm-hmm. dangerous tactic to like exacerbate a problem hoping that that will create you know political momentum for for doing something about the problem uh so so Immigration really puts a lot of pressure on, on localities because of NIMBYism. The other thing that immigration does is it puts pressure on local government financing. And this is much more true of low skilled immigration than high skilled immigration. So one reason is that low skilled immigrants tend to have a lot of kids, especially the people coming here for asylum. A lot of those people have kids and those kids have to be educated and those kids have to have their, you know, some of their healthcare provided for the, uh, provided by the government. Um, We, in 1996, we massively restricted the welfare benefits immigrants can receive. So the idea that immigrants are sponging a whole bunch on welfare is outdated because they, they were, you know, back in 1995, but in 1996, Bill Clinton signed the personal responsibility and work, blah, blah, something act, the per war act. And, um and then that cut immigrants, both legal and illegal, by the way, off of tons of welfare benefits, but not all. And it didn't cut them off of like public good spending. So you still, there's still a lot of stuff the government has to spend money on. Um, there's a lot of healthcare stuff. People can still get, uh, certainly if nothing else, they get emergency room care. You know, if you don't have a doctor because you're a poor immigrant and then you, you know, you break your leg or you have cancer or whatever, you go to the emergency room and they treat you and It's much more expensive. Than and so, uh, and, and the government just ends up, you know, footing the bill a lot through that. So There's still a lot of stuff that the government pays for for immigrants, especially and most of it is paid for at the local level and local government finances get absolutely strained. And because low skilled immigrants don't make a lot of money and their kids tend to not make a lot of money and their grandkids tend to not make a lot of money, they don't really pay for themselves. And so you get these massive strains on local government finances, not just now, but like for the next 20 years. And obviously local governments are upset about this. So what you see now is the the red states started busing a bunch of these, you know, asylum seeker migrants um, to New York and to other blue cities, right? To these progressive cities. They started busing them them there. And these progressive cities provide tons of local sort of government benefits for these people. And it was massively straining their budget. And now they're freaking out. You know, it was a very successful operation by the red state governors to bust these people to the blue cities. You know, and because now those cities are overwhelmed, right? It's blue cities and blue states. So they're like New York City, for example, they're busing them too. There, there was a famous group of migrants who were bused to Martha's Vineyard, but most of them are just bused to the big cities. And uh, the migrants are like, hey, I'll go to New York. Hell yeah, I would. You know, if I were a migrant, I'd be like, New York. Hell yeah. But then like they, you know, they get to New York and and New York has a robust uh, sort of welfare, local city welfare state I guess. And, um, and that's always been true by the way, back to the beginning of New York. And that's why New York has always had like immigrant exclusion eruptions. And so, so this is the other thing, local government finance strain. This is turning Democrats against immigration. This is because it's not job competition anymore, really, right? Like the, the Cesar Chavez era is, is, and the Bernie Sanders era is basically done. What it is, is it, the, you know, they've bulked up the fiscal state to, to support poor people at the local level, and they're getting overwhelmed by this flood, and they can't do it. And th- these are also some of the most NIMBY cities and some of the most in-demand cities. So there, you know, there's rent competition, there's rent competition, and there's fiscal uh, competition. So we have to move away from talking about the problems of immigration in terms of job competition. That's old. That is the old era. We need to move away from that. And yes, I know Republicans are scared about political, you know, uh, replacement and about cultural change and, and, and racial wars and things like that. I don't care about that stuff. I don't th- you know, I think America is a big melting pot and it all works and blah, blah, blah. But the fiscal competition and the ho- and the housing competition are two real negative local effects of immigration. And Democrats have to stop pretending these things don't exist. Democratic leaders and, and commentators, progressive commentators have to stop pretending those things don't exist because they do, and they are killing the pro-immigration cause and hurting Biden's re-election chances, hurting Democrats' chances in the, you know, at the same time. It's about, it's about fiscal and housing. That, those are the real local costs of immigration and ignoring those, waving those away just because job competition isn't real, you know, just because, um, you know, just because we're progressive. So we don't care about cultural change, you know, screw you racist. Like, okay, fine, fine, fine. The fiscal competition and the housing competition are real. And you also can't just wave a magic wand and say, well, we're going to yimby away to all the housing competition because you're not. Y- Yimbyism is coming from behind where we're, we're trying to fix the mistakes of the seventies. We're still you know, we're, we're desperately behind and it's very hard going and blah, blah, blah. And in, in the influx of, you know, like 20 million migrants or whatever in like the next, you know, decade or, or whatever we're going to get, that will, that will swamp a lot of our working class neighborhoods with demand for housing that drives up rents. And will you know, people say oh, rent control. Well, what do you think, where are people, where are the migrants going to live if you do rent control? Like, so, so. They're just going to be excluded. They're just going to be, there's going to be slums at the outskirts of your cities. It's going to suck, you know, tent cities and whatever, like you're going to tin shacks. I don't know. It's going to be bad. And so how the housing competition thing is real and you can't just wave a magic wand and say, well, we'll go Yimby. Yes, we'll go Yimby. I hope we will, but it won't be enough. And um, the fiscal competition, there's no way to wave that away. There is a trade-off between a welfare state and open borders. There absolutely is a trade-off and you, there's reliable research that support for welfare states goes down when immigration goes up. And that's not just, <coughs> it's not just like racism, like, oh, I don't want a brown person getting my tax dollars. There, there's probably some of that, right? There's some of that. But you know, um, the, uh, there, there's real fiscal competition. There's real fiscal crowding out uh, there. And so to, we can't wave it away. There's absolutely no way around that, right? If you give, if one locality gives a generous welfare benefit and allows anyone who wants to move to that locality, the welfare benefit will be swamped. The only way to maintain a generous welfare state is to maintain some degree of population exclusion. Because as people become mobile, uh, you know, the internet has made people more mobile, all kinds of things have made people more mobile. Just development, getting richer has made people more mobile. They will you know poor people who need welfare will go to the place that has the generous welfare state. They will, I would, you would. I don't blame them. It's not bad, they're not bad. they're not they're not you know sponging you know they're not like a bunch of parasites, blah blah blah. I would do it. you would do it. but it's not you know it's it's a it's a non solvable problem as long as welfare is administered at the local level. And until we have welfare administered at the global level by the one world government that our black helicopters and Illuminati are hard at work building, blah, 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 until we have that, all welfare will be at the local level to some degree, right? Your welfare will just be, you know, United States. I- even our federal welfare system is just the United States, right? So if, w- if we have a better welfare system than Guatemala and you're a poor person who needs welfare and you're in Guatemala, you're like, well, I should move to the United States where at least I'll be taking- I'll have my basic needs taken care of. That is rational. And yet, if you agree that a nation has the right to, to govern its borders, to determine who gets in, that a nation has the right to be an exclusive club and that open borders is silly, which I think essentially all Americans will agree with, then you're going to say, I'm sorry, poor Guatemalan person. I am not going to let you in. That's what everyone's going to say, except a few activists who are like, you uh, poor Guatemalan has just as much a right to live here as a poor American. Why why is this person different? Or libertarians will say this, you know. Libertarians of course just they want to destroy the welfare state. That's a feature, not a bug, right? They're like, yeah, let's let in more immigrants so support for welfare state goes away. Shut up. Like sub-libertarians, no one likes you and no one ever liked you. Anyway, <laughs> all right, there's there's highlight reel. No, um the point is that Libertarians are very much on their own about the, the open the idea that we should have open borders to destroy the welfare state. Like Alex Nauriste of the, uh, of the Cato Institute says this, and Brian Kaplan says this, and no one likes those guys because of this. Like, stop, you're weird, you know, and your movement doesn't have any girls in it. And that's why, because you're just creepy weird, because <laughs> no, we don't want to destroy the welfare
0: state. Yeah. Countries must be exclusive to some degree. So you don't believe in open borders. You are a pro-immigration person. What is the ideal amount of, uh, of immigration? Per- how, how do you think about what is the level of sustainable immigration? That that makes sense. What's your ideal immigration policy?
1: Um, that's a really great question. And then, uh, I mean, if, if you ask me off the top of my head, I would say, first of all, the level depends on whether on how biased it is toward high skilled. If we had only high skilled immigration, I would say America can afford, um, you know, a couple million people a year coming in. That would be pretty easy. Now that's going to create hellacious rent competition in upscale areas. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, we're going to build a bunch of new ethno burbs and a bunch of new fancy, like, you know, far-flung exurbs, and we'll have to increase transportation and it'll be tough, but, but, you know, There'll even be some gentrification when those people move into working class neighborhoods and price out the locals, blah, blah, blah. But we could, we could handle this because the clustering effects will make us really, really rich of high-skilled immigration. If you're talking about low-skilled immigration, I think it's less. You know, I think, I think the amount that we can handle there is less because they move directly to working class neighborhoods and compete for housing. And also they, they don't flood our, our fiscal coffers with a bunch of money. So when you get high skilled immigrants, they pay so much taxes, they much, much more than pay for the cost of sustaining them because so they don't use much welfare and they pay a ton of taxes, right? So you're, you're basically selling spots in America to, uh, you know, very smart people from overseas who can earn a lot of money working for American tech companies or whatever. And so that's, that's great for our fiscal governments. It really floods us with tax money. And if these fiscal governments are flush, can spend it on whatever they want, but, but low skilled immigrants, it's the opposite. You know, you've got to pay to support them uh, at least if you have generous local welfare states. And so, so for there, there are carrying capacities less and we're, you know um, yeah, I, 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 it's hard to give actual numbers. You know, I can look at the Nineties and two thousands is a proxy, but of course, you know, it's, it's hard to build as much excerpts as we did in like 2004. So that, that changes it, right? Um, Local welfare states have probably (coughs) gotten a bit more generous since the great recession, right? We, we, during that recession, a lot of people were poor. A lot of people were hurting. So we, and, and also during COVID actually, uh, so we pumped up these, these local welfare states at city level, at the state level to give more support to people who needed it. Uh, that's probably still in place. So that actually reduces our carrying capacity in terms of how many immigrants you can get before you really start to get to trade-offs. Right. Um, I will say that under Biden, immigration has rebounded strongly from where it was under Trump. Partly that's because of the uh, end of the pandemic. And partly that's because Biden is processing immigrants a lot faster. Uh, illegal immigration has spiked, but legal immigration has spiked by more, um, that's fine. You know, everybody has a job note, note in America that everybody has a job and rent inflation is, is back down to basically like a small amount. Uh, so, so really we're, we're doing fine right now, except for the, the border chaos and, you know, the inflow of, um, you know, asylum seekers, it's freaking people out. You know, we're not, we're not economically crushing ourselves. Uh, maybe if we had a,
0: Continued massive acceleration, we would, but we're not really crushing ourselves. So you would think w- that immigration is becoming a problem when we have ha- prices, house prices um, going up, and when um, sort of the government budgets can't can't uh, sustain it. Or what are the signs that you would that would right. point to this being a problem? Yes, you've got it exactly. And the problem that we're now seeing is
1: in cities that have generous welfare states that they're bussing all the migrants to, and the migrants and housing and giving healthcare and all the other generous welfare benefits that like New York or whatever will have for these migrants is creating a massive strain on the city's fiscal, uh, capacity, city's budgets, and just making everybody mad in the cities, especially making progressives mad. And, um, that, that is the the current economic problem that's happening. That's the problem. And that is, yeah. that goes with the, feeling of border insecurity. The fact that we feel that like this asylum trick that you can use to get in for free is, has abolished borders, has reduced American state capacity, has made us democratically unable to choose who gets into the country. So those two things go together, the, the migrant strain on fiscal resources and the feeling of, of insecure borders. Those two things together are creating an anti-immigrant backlash and the Democrats need to head it off. Right now, there's a proposed deal in Congress where Democrats will get funding for the Ukraine war, which Republicans are trying to hold hostage. And in return, uh, we have increased border security. Democrats should jump on that. Instead, progressives are strongly resisting because they really don't like the idea of border security, but they should jump on that. Take that deal. Yeah. Democrats cannot afford to take the progressive activist line of like all this, you know, the, the asylum spamming is no problem they can't afford to take that line. And, and, and yet progressives in, uh, progressives in Congress <coughs> are taking the line of like fringe activists and not taking the line of like mainstream democratic voters who are pissed off about this stuff.
0: Yep. And in terms of your, the composition of the people who come in for you, is it more, is it ideal to have more high-skilled than low-skilled? You know, cause I imagine the people who are, you seeking asylum are not super high-skilled though. I. I Maybe I'm wrong there. How do you think about the ideal composition? Mostly not.
1: Yeah. So we need, we need to, so first of all, people seeking asylum, uh, those, we don't have control over the composition of that. That just is what it is, right? If we, um, those are going to be a lot more low-skilled people, but it, it changes to our official legal immigration system won't affect that. Right. The, um, in terms of our official legal immigration system, we need to add more employment-based visas and remove country caps and things like that. There's a lot of things we need to do to, to bias it more toward high-skilled immigration. And the easiest way to do high-skilled immigration is employment-based visas because then people come in with a job. um with a job already people really don't like that really pisses a lot of people off because so I'm saying not employment-based visas employment-based green cards, permanent residency and permanent residency is of course a guaranteed, you know, path to citizenship. If you keep living here, but, um, but we need to do more employment-based green cards. That is really the way to, to get to more high-skilled immigration. High-skilled immigration is great for a number of reasons. Fiscally they flood the coffers of local and state governments with Money, right? Fit, high-skilled immigrants tax dollars pay for your grandma to get taken care of at the old folks' home, right? That's what that is, and and they pay for your schools and your roads and all that stuff that they're paying. And so, get more of them, they pay more. So that's one one important reason. A second important reason, which I didn't haven't talked about yet, is clustering. So when you get a whole bunch of engineers, people who know how to do engineering or, or biotech or whatever high skill you're talking about really mostly engineering and biotech and 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 management right we get like uh satya nadella best ceo in america right saved the uh, the ai revolution the other day uh so so you get immigrants with these skills they come over they create clusters because what happens is that companies want to put their offices and their research facilities and blah blah and even their factories you know in places where there's lots of high skilled labor to take advantage of in places where you, the investment follows the engineers and we want companies to be investing in America instead of investing overseas. The investment follows the engineers. So when you bring more engineers here, you bring more investment here and just creates a whole lot of money, which is why um, high-skilled immigration actually boosts wages for high-skilled native-born people. It actually raises their wages, uh, you know, which is the opposite of what you think from like labor competition. When you bring in more people on H-1Bs, more employment-based green cards, more of any of this, we see wages go up for skilled, you know, native-born Americans in that sector. The reason is clustering. The reason is because they lure investment. The human capital, get the human capital and the investment will follow. And that investment creates huge amounts of money uh, right there. You know, if you took uh, a million like engineers and plonked them right down in the city of bozeman montana assuming that you could build houses for all of them right then uh bozeman montana would suddenly be a place that every tech company in the world wanted to invest in and so you get this clustering effect and and you get an innovation clustering effect where they share ideas with each other they pollinate they cross pollinate across companies by hopping from company to company and you get people who know how to do this thing combining with people who know how to do that thing and you get all this innovation from this this very mobile labor ecosystem right and um So then that's a clustering effect too. Uh, So there's all these, these, there's all these clustering effects. Um, That's why, that's why high-skilled immigration is like a superpower. Low-skilled immigration, you know, is fine. We need some of it. We need people to, you know, do take care of kids and do landscaping and whatnot. We absolutely need those people, but (laughs) high-skilled people are what we need the most, especially because when we're facing off against China, we're a small country, right? We're facing off against a country four times our size. Which means that, you know, even if you don't buy into, like, any of the, like, oh, national IQ, they're, they're smarter than us kind of theory. Even if you don't buy into any of that, they've got four times the amount of smart people just right off the bat because they've got four times the people to select from. Okay? And that means that there's going to be a lot more smart engineers in China than there are in America. A lot more because they have the, peop- the population base to select from. There are four times as many people in China as, as in the United States. And yes, China's getting older and their population's shrinking and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, so maybe it'll be three and a half times soon, but that's still a huge ratio. We, the only way we can compete with that talent in terms of investment, in terms of, you know, like research and engineering talent and blah, blah is immigration. That's the only way we can compete. We need to let smart people in from India, from Vietnam, from the Philippines, from Nigeria, from, um, Cameroon, you know, from, uh, uh, you know, Bangladesh from all these places, from Indonesia, which is like the most neglected country of all from anywhere that I haven't mentioned, we need to let these people in from those countries so that we can stay on top so that we, you know, so that China doesn't leave us in the dust and turn us into an agricultural backwater. So it's a matter of national security to take in large amounts of high skilled immigration.
0: Yeah. Um, before, before wrapping, let's, um, let's briefly uh steel man the uh, the republican critique so that we can uh, knock them down I'll, I'll do my best so uh, there, you mentioned three of them you mentioned racial cultural and um political the political one seems act- actually somewhat straightforward in the sense that you, you you mentioned that immigrants tend to vote democrat until they stay th- th- three generations at which point they return vote republican so that does seem you know uh if you're a republican it seems reasonable that uh if you want to win you know the fewer immigrants the the the, the better for, for your cause let me know if you think that that's reasonable the racial i i definitely i think it's crazy to think that there's like a deliberate plan to reduce the amount of uh white people in this country but um you know if if, if there is dei for for every you know sort of organization or, or sort of like that cultural ethos, you could imagine it, you know, expanding on a country level. And it, it does seem that the amount of white people is going to be reduced in the, in the coming decades. And if that was happening to every, any other group, th- those people would be concerned and, and we would maybe say they have a r- right to be concer- concerned, concerned. Or I think there's, there's, uh, there are even terms for this in other countries when, when, when that happens um, in, in kind of a del- uh, deliberate way, although I agree i don't think this is deliberate i think it's like incremental um or emergent um and then lastly uh on the cultural side um i think we used to assimilate better or that's what people say is we used to assimilate better um and you, you people see the problems that are happening in europe with a large refugee population and they worry that that could happen to to us if if we don't take care of the the border maybe, maybe that one seems the weakest but i'm curious uh, for, for your thoughts on all three
1: all right. So that that's a lot to to bite off really fast. Um let's talk about political replacement. That is real. That's a real fear. Um the Federalists and Whigs were both, you know, sort of at first anti-immigration because they said, well, you're just importing votes for the Democrats. And um and that this has been a very consistent thing where that it's always the Democratic Party that people are uh, even when the Democratic Party was like pro-slavery, you know, they were the arch conservative racists, they were still the pro-immigrant party. That's the most consistent thing about the Democrats throughout the centuries. And, um, and, uh, you know, the Federalists and Whigs who were like all anti-immigrant back in the 18, early 1800s. And so, um, this is real. Political replacement is real, but it's, but it's manageable. It's temporary because right now what we're seeing is we're seeing Hispanics start to shift to the GOP, right? We're, uh, we're seeing, I, you know, there's not as many Asian people and they're not as consistent, you know, consistently polled. but we're starting to see maybe a little bit of that shift as well. Um, But Hispanics certainly are shifting pretty strongly to the GOP, especially working class Hispanics, the very same low skilled immigrants that people were scared of, like their kids and grandkids are just like, you know, like anti-trans or, or, you know, like, or don't want more immigrants coming, you know, or like the most, the most border security, insane obsessed people you'll ever meet are, you know, people in the border counties of Texas who speak Spanish in their daily lives. They are like, no, close that border. No, you know, do whatever you have to. Get out the guns. Like, shoot the, shoot the people. And they're, they're like, they're, they're insanely in favor of border security, and they're all voting for the Republicans now. Those counties are going red because, you know, working class, uh, because, because they're right on the border. Working class Hispanics are shifting to the Republican Party. You even see some movement among Black people. Uh, shifting to the Republican party, uh, you know, and Ronald Reagan said, he said, uh, Latinos are Republicans. They just don't realize it yet. And his, his, you know, for a while, it looked like that was starting to come true. Uh, You know, the the Republicans were getting more and more Latino vote, like under Bush, they got 40 something percent. It was not, you know, the, the Republicans didn't win Latinos yet, but they were much closer than they were before. And now uh, then then under Trump there was this uh, or uh, not under Trump actually under Obama um, there was this there was this big shift to the left and you got people like John Judas and uh, Roy Chazeera writing things like the coming Democratic majority inevitable blah 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 which just triggered and scared everybody and was stupid and which they have now recanted strongly and are arguing against on their blog very strongly those two guys who wrote that all right so because they realized that it's not true and that that Ronald Reagan was probably was right in the long term you know um, Irish people voted for the Democrats for like a long time and then, then switched to basically, uh, slightly Republican. Italian people voted for the Democrats for a long time and then switched to fairly strongly Republican actually now. Uh, and so you get these, uh, these shifts to, to the Republicans over time. And that's going to happen. That's going to happen with the, with, with Latinos, with Hispanic. It will happen. Right. And, um, so I, it, it is a, it is a real thing. But I would say that what Republicans should do is, is just court, court the Hispanics harder, right? You can win. You can win those guys. You know, the idea, the the idea of keeping them out has already sailed. That ship has sailed. Instead, you know, keep them in, (laughs) import them into the Republican coalition and you'll get a new, like that was Reagan Democrats, right? The Reagan Democrats were the, the white ethnics. Reagan Democrats were Italian. And to some degree, even, even the few still Irish people who still had some somewhat of an immigrant background, but Italian, Polish, Czech, uh, you know, Americans, Greek Americans who had those, you know, who had working class backgrounds and had struggled their way up to the middle class and liked what Reagan was selling. That was why we had the massive, massive Republican majorities of like the the 70s and, and, and 80s, right? It was because of the shift of the Reagan Democrat. Latinos are that. Hispanics are that. Get them on your side, Republicans, like you can, so you can win again. You just have to get those guys. So that's my answer to the political replacement thing. And when, if, and when Hispanics start voting like 52 to 48 Republican, you will see a shift. You will see a shift. And then that, that day is not, that day is closer than you think. That day is closer than anyone thinks. Um, I'm from Texas and I'm here to tell you that, you know, you will, you will not meet more people who are more right-wing than, Hispanic right-wingers, you know, you will not like you go to, you, you know, you got to, to San Antonio or whatever area, and you will just like everyone's really right-wing and everyone is of Mexican descent. Yep. And so that's, so that's the answer to the political replacement, cultural replacement. Um, this is like, if you're in Japan, that's a big concern because Japan runs on culture. You know, you need people to carry their trash with them. not rob stores and be super conscientious and return money on the ground to like the station attendant. There will be wrenching cultural shifts from immigration uh, if Japan can't rapidly assimilate immigrants to their culture. And I think in America, uh, not in America, sorry, in European countries, you're seeing these wrenching shifts where you had this long lasting, long standing local culture in Sweden, in Denmark, in you know, um, even in the tolerant Netherlands, right, in France, you've seen these long-standing uh, local cultures that have been really disrupted by certain groups of immigrants, like, um in these places, and that's a worry for them, you know, and that's why Dem- Denmark is, is going through these harsh, like, assimilation policies, where, like, immigrant, migrant kids have to, like, go all day to assimilation school and learn about Danish values, and then some other countries are, you know, electing like the Netherlands just uh, just support like elected the party of this very anti-immigrant guy. France is moving toward in that direction as well, um, and so you're seeing this. And I understand it. And America is not that right. Like for example, American what is American culture? So like punk rock, heavy metal. When I was a kid, people liked punk rock and heavy metal. Now you know white kids are on to like. I mean, some are onto like EDM or, or hip hop, but most just don't like music, popular music at all. And like white kids don't listen to music anymore, but there's still tons of great punk and heavy metal shows in Southern California. And guess who's going to those shows? It's all Mexican people. It's all Latinos who, who are keeping that, that culture that I love, that piece of American culture that I love is being kept alive by Latinos. And, you know, what else is like American culture, like a uh, weeb culture? You know, I, I understand that it comes from Japan, but Japanese people have no concept of weeb culture. I'm like, what, what the hell? Like, but, but loving like anime and cosplay and stuff like that, like all the biggest weebs I meet are Latino. And like, that is preserving this part of American culture that I love. Christianity in San Francisco, in the mission, you walk past a, a church where people are just screaming about Jesus, evangelical, not even Catholic, you know, you think all these, these, Latin American people are Catholic, but like actually evangelicalism is growing very fast among them. And actually, I think there's more evangelical Latinos than than Catholic Latinos in America now. And so you walk past a church where people are like, praise Jesus in the middle of San Francisco. Who's doing that? Is it like white people? No, it's not even Korean people who are like, as a general rule, pretty Jesus uh, forward. Um, You know, Korea has the highest number of evangelical missionaries of any country in the world. It's not, it's Latinos singing praise Jesus in the mission, in the middle of this hipster, bougie, bluest city in America. You know, I'm hearing people yelling about Jesus on the street. This is, this is this church that's on Mission Street uh, between the 16th and 24th stations. I don't remember what it's called. People are like yelling about Jesus spilling into the street, like late at night, like 10 p.m., 11 p.m., and it's Latino people. So Christianity, that. If you think Christianity is traditional American culture, guess who's gonna preserve Christianity? Latinos, right? So America is just not in the situation of Sweden or Japan or France or Denmark. We are not in the situation, we are not them. And we had an immigrant culture from the beginning and we were bound together by things like, you know, Christianity and punk rock. We were bound together by a whole bunch of stuff that we basically made up to bind us together we didn't make up christianity but we did make up evangelical christianity and um and and that was a thing that bound americans of all kinds of backgrounds together irish people italian people you know and black people too could be evangelical christians right like you did have the the division between black and white evangelical churches in the south but certainly modern mega churches are a lot more racially mixed and so so if you value that culture if you value that culture latinos are going to preserve and and protect that culture. So the cultural replacement theory works for these, these ethno states on the other side of the ocean. And it doesn't work for us, right? That may, it doesn't make sense for us. Our culture is going to be, you know, protected by a lot of immigrants. Now that's not true of all immigrants. You're going to get that, like, you know, you're going to get some immigrant who's like, you know, Islam will conquer you, will conquer the West, blah, blah, with some you know, silly looking beard. You'll get that guy. Uh, like you just saw it in, in this, this speech that's being from Dearborn that's being broadcast everywhere, but like there will be a few of those guys. And so, you know, but, but overall, most of the people who want to come to America will, will not be that guy. And overall immigrants will, will protect and preserve American culture. We are the best at assimilating immigrants Not because we have any forced assimilation program like Denmark has, but simply because you move to America, you get the big suburban house in the yard, or maybe not a yard, but you, you, you get the, you know, the house and the car and you, you know, you go to the mall and whatever, and you just become an American very quickly. And we have the superpower that those other countries don't have. So I'm not worried about the cultural replacement stuff for America. I would worry about it if I were in charge of Japan. I would worry about cultural replacement. I'm not worried for America because we're just different. We're a different kind of country, and so that's that's that. And as for as for racial replacement, um, like, look, okay, fellas, this ship has sailed. Texas is minority white. Cal, you know, California is minority white. If those places are destined to fall into race war, it's it's too late. Texas is gone but it's not, right? It's wrong. This this kind of racial replacement theory is just is just wrong. Uh, because Texas is not falling into a race war. It will not happen. You will not see white and Hispanic Texans shooting at each other and genociding each other and cutting each other's throats. It will not happen. It didn't happen before. When people have been scared about this since the founding of the republic. You had as late as like, you know, the the turn of the the 20th century, right? 1900, you had these you had these crazy newspapers, these, 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 you know, indie newspapers in the Midwest saying the Catholics are going to rise up and kill the Protestants in their sleep. And we've got to have militias that train to shoot and destroy the Catholics in a genocidal war, right? It's us get, either they or us will be genocided. You had people saying this on the radio, as soon as you invent radio, right? As soon as radio gets distributed to households, one of the first things is like these People saying the Catholics will rise up and destroy us unless we destroy them first. And, and, and these, you had all, you had militias in Ohio drilling to like kill all the Catholics. It never happened. Right. Yeah. You had some, some Catholic Protestant race riots in the early 1800s, right? You had the pogrom in Philadelphia. You had a bunch of race riots. You had a bunch of religious rights, then it wasn't even race rights. They didn't even think of Catholic and Protestants as a race, that concept came later. They thought of them as just these these tribes, right? These religious tribes, Um, there was a, you know, what we now recognize as a racial aspect to it because it was like, you know, Irish versus English, right? There was that uh, racial quote unquote distinction, but really, um, uh, or later Italians, but really honestly, it was mostly anti-Irish. And there was this, it never happened. There's no race war. Texas is not going to have like a genocidal race war. California is not going to have a genocidal race war, right? And like America is so diverse that at this point, DEI policies are increasingly untenable, as was affirmative action. Affirmative action just got struck down by the Supreme Court. Uh, But, you know, part of that was because conservatives got on the Supreme Court. But I think the reason there wasn't more outcry against it is because everyone realized that like now having like, you know, with everybody having like one Cuban grandparent or something, right? The, the concept, the old like America, where it was like, you know, 12% black, 88% white, and that was it. And then you had like a couple, you know, Asian and Hispanic people hanging around that old America of like 1970. it, it, It was a little more diverse than that. Okay. I'm just exaggerating, but the old black, white America is gone and we're very racially mixed and in a kaleidoscopic, confusing way. And that's why affirmative action policies. Uh, you know, couldn't, weren't sustainable in the long term because like, does, does, you know, is someone who's like half Laotian, half Bhutanese, does that person get preference over a white person with one Cuban grandparent? You tell me. And that, that crazy complex spoil system was just really weird. And that same thing is going to happen with corporate DEI, right? You're, you're going to realize that trying to like get the right number of Laotian Bhutanese employees, you know, is, is a, is just a losing thing that imposes tons of costs on your company. And, uh, you're muted by the way. And then, um, so I get to talk more, ha ha ha. You've muted yourself. (laughs) Um, and, and, and the Supreme court's going to strike a lot of it down.
0: Well, that's a good, uh, good, uh, debunking of those three, uh, of those three points. Should we wrap our, uh, immigration deep dive here? Yeah, we need to do something about
1: the border chaos and the asylum spamming and the flood of the migrants into the city. Something needs to be done about it. Something will be done about it. And if Democrats refuse to do something about it, they'll be punished at the polls. Um, we need to go really hard Yimby, but understand that that won't necessarily be enough to, to mitigate the housing impact of immigration. We need to bias immigration towards high-skilled stuff just for the sake of our economy, just because it's, You know, low-skilled immigrants aren't bad, but we need to recruit high-skilled immigrants to keep our economy strong. Um, And these things, uh, you know, these things are all true. And they paint a nuanced picture of what immigration policy should look like that is not being reflected in the increasingly partisan wedge issue, culture war sort of framing of the immigration issue. And it's kind of frustrating because Democrats are going to lose out from it.
0: Yeah. 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 That's a, a good summary and a good deep dive. I, I didn't know about the housing costs and the fiscal strain. I thought about the, a bit about the labor, even though I knew it was widely discredited. So uh, I think a number, I, I learned a bunch in this episode. I think a number of other people have, have as well. Um, so Noah, always, uh, oh, always well, a pleasure. That's great, if, you know. Yeah, and until next time. Always a pleasure. Until next time.
2: Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts, to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at ericaterpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at terpentine.co, and let's partner together.